When Churchill in 1946 announced that an Iron Curtain had descended over Europe, the U.S. government employed two dozen experts on the Soviet Union. Two years later, with the Cold War well underway, the CIA only employed 12 Russian speakers. However, over the following decades, philanthropists and the U.S. government started an intellectual mobilization that had profound effects on the course of the Cold War. In this conversation with David Engerman, the author of Know Your Enemy, The Rise and Fall of America's Soviet Experts, we'll discuss how America created a cadre of Soviet specialists, what their impact was on U.S. policy, and what lessons the story of the West boning up on the Soviet Union has for contemporary area studies and China studies in particular. Today, I have two co-hosts with me, Chris Miller, Tufts professor and David's old PhD student, as well as Sam George, who just finished up a master's in East Asia studies at Stanford. Welcome, everyone, to China Talk. So, David, what was the state of play pre-World War II, and how did area studies impact the course of uh, how America conducted that war? So uh, one of the mi- biggest figures in areas in Russia studies in the interwar period was a, a guy named Samuel Harper, who was the son of the founding president of the University of Chicago. And he wrote uh, in, in the 20s that, that Russian studies was a field, a small field uh, comprised solely of uh, freaks and nuts, I think was his direct quote. And by that, he had himself very much included. There were a handful of Russia experts, by which I'd mean people who um, were trained and paid to analyze Russia uh, for American audiences, Um, but they were dispersed, uh, disagreeing, in some cases quite disagreeable, um, and as likely to work in journalism uh, as they were in universities. Uh, So there was not a lot lot to mobilize when World War II uh, came about. Um, there were a number of efforts to build language training programs that actually dated back before the war and became uh, a big part of language training during the war, trying to train soldiers and sailors for a liaison with the Soviets or actually for occupying forces as well. But there wasn't really a field of Russian studies until after uh, after the end of World War II. So, okay, World War II... Uh, we had a little time of being not allies so- with the Soviet Union, then we became allies with the Soviet Union, and then afterwards we're back to, uh, you know, the Cold War kicks off. How does the conversation around uh, Soviet studies and it's important to America's future change after uh, the Cold War starts to heat up? During World War II, Soviet studies was wrapped up in conversations about other area studies, right? So when they're looking to uh, to kind of map the vast terrain of American ignorance of the rest of the world... Um, then, uh, then you're like, not just talking about Russia, you're talking about Asia, especially the fronts in Southeast Asia, you're talking about China, you're talking about, uh, for that matter, Europe, there's no formal kind of European studies, uh, at this point either. Although of course it's obviously, um, a, a touchstone for, for a lot of American academic work. So all of this is considered, uh, I, I would say it's kind of building up an area studies complex in which Russia was just one element. It would become the most important element only after uh, World War II, just as you, for the reasons you suggest, as the kind of, it becomes clear that the Soviet Union will be a, an adversary on a kind of global scale, um, which is something that emerges with, you know, between 1945 and 1947. This has actually a really big impact in the early years of area studies. Um, the war does, and I would say it has a, the war has an impact on two counts. One is that there's this sort of attitude of total mobilization, right? You're not asking a lot of questions about, say, political pasts. Uh, and so a number of the early folks involved in Russian studies, um, some of them were, were card-carrying members of the Communist Party, as you would say, but more of them, um, but uh, most of them were not. Many of them had been connected to one or another kind of left New Deal cause over the course of the 1930s and into the 40s. So this attitude of total mobilization actually carries over uh, strikingly into early um, Cold War Soviet studies. Uh, and the second is that the original programs were set up not only to know your enemy. I mean, the title of the book is in some sense half ironic, um, that it was about a knowing a sort of uncomfortable ally as much as it was knowing uh, knowing an enemy. And so uh, when Columbia set up the first university-based Russian studies program, the Russian, now the Harriman Institute, uh, which was set up in 1946, they expected to have business people uh, send their uh, rising executives to get uh, MAs in Russian studies so that they'd be prepared to do business with Russia. So far as I know, there was only one person who actually did that from Pan Am Airlines. Um, uh, and he was, I think, 
far too uh, far too early to be able to use his Russian language skills uh, in Pan Am flights to Moscow. Um, but it was just a different environment. Uh, it was it was set up, I guess, on different premises than we think of the kind of know your enemy element. But David, can you talk then about the transition from this period in nineteen fifties, where you have individual research contracts that are defining uh, government relations with the field. What's the next phase in the late 50s into the 60s, and how do things change at that point? Well, the next phase for the government, in terms of the government, is the National Defense Education Act. Um, uh, for anyone who's ever received a national direct student loan, NDSL, this is actually something that comes out of an American response to Sputnik, the uh, Soviet launch of a satellite in October 1957. And the idea with... Um, National Defense Education Act was to double down on science education, but also to double down on area studies. Uh, and so it provided FLAS grants, foreign language and area studies grants to graduate students. It set up uh, sort of the infrastructure that supported a large number of area study centers uh, for decades. So in the initial moment with these government research programs, they took place almost exclusively at Harvard Columbia. Um, but the Department of Education, at that point, Office of Education Funding uh, for the area studies programs uh, are really what allowed places like Berkeley, Wisconsin, Indiana, Michigan. Uh, they really built up their uh, area studies programs, became truly international and global institutions uh, because of uh, the government money. Now, the government only provided some of it, but they required matching funds. And so that essentially doubled any any grant that they would receive. Those grants provided undergraduate, it's a bonuses for undergraduate education, for outreach into the community, and also for um, uh, for graduate training. And it, it just built up an infrastructure uh, for language training as well. So language and foreign language enrollments doubled um, between 1958 and 62. Uh, in university level, foreign language enrollments doubled. And so Russian study, you know, study of Russian doubled, but so did the study of Spanish. It wasn't only about knowing one's enemy, it was actually about knowing the world writ large. Uh, I don't think they could have done it if there hadn't been these kind of um, inklings of a field coming into being out of places like uh, Harvard uh, and Columbia, but uh, they could really leverage uh, leverage their funds to create a national enterprise. So has the U.S. tried not exactly from scratch, but sort of from scratch to build up this infrastructure. It relied a lot on um, emigres from Russia or from the region who spoke Russia. Can you talk about uh, how that influenced the early uh, stages of the Russian studies field, um, both the emigres and also emigres from other parts of the Russian empire who um, might not have had the best, uh, the most positive view of Russia? Say Poland, for instance, which we'll come to at the end of this. Well, I mean, it's important to note, actually, that there were in the very earliest stages, they avoided, these programs avoided having uh, emigres. Uh, they, they felt they couldn't be objective about it. I actually remember hearing a story from the very distinguished historian at Berkeley, uh, Nicholas Riesanowski, who when he said when he was hired, which I think was in 1955, uh, hired at Berkeley, his department chair uh, pulled him to the office once he arrived and his welcome was to say, you know, I voted against your appointment because I don't think Russians can be objective about their own history. Now, he got the job. <laughs> uh, I, I do think that the emigres were, were somewhat limited in those early years um, to things that were closer to language, and which obviously relied very heavily on emigres. In fact, there's a fairly nasty uh, Vladimir Nabokov novel, uh, Pnin, about, <laughs> about the sort of drill instructors coming from, uh, from Russia, uh, language drill instructors. Um, but to keep them in the places where, you know, Ru Russian emigres could talk about culture, but they couldn't talk about politics. Uh, and that eventually does change. Um, I don't think there's any one kind of moment when it changes, but you do see two Polish emigres make their way uh, into the field um, fairly uh, quickly, both of whom have staunchly anti-Soviet uh, positions. Uh, Richard Pipes, who um, spent his career at Harvard, except for two years at the Reagan White House, and uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who shuttles for a little while between Harvard and Columbia before going down to the Trilateral Commission and then ultimately to Washington. But in the very first year, this was a, the, they were very careful. The field's um, kind of waspy fathers were very careful about um, to keep some distance from immigrants. 
Can we stay on the um uh, the question of infrastructure for um for another second? So materials collection um when you're researching a uh, communist regime is not uh particularly one that's not uh, super friendly to the U.S. has been a challenge um in the Soviet era and is an increasingly a challenge today. Uh, how did Soviet scholars over time uh, think about, you know, getting data and newspapers and and sort of the, the raw inputs aside from just, um, you know, books uh, in order for them to do the analysis? They had they worked really hard on this and they pulled their they pulled whatever government connections they could. One of the things about the World War II attitude of total mobilization is that many, many, many people who were in elite universities um, we're doing some kind of, some or another kind of war, uh, wartime activity, uh, working for government in one place or another during the war. And they pulled all those connections. One of the consistent problems at places like Harvard, Columbia was to get overeager postal inspectors to let issues of Pravda and Izvestia go through, right? They couldn't even get the daily, <laughs> they couldn't even get the daily newspapers. Uh, so some of it was, you know, through politics, um, some of it was kind of finding end, end arounds. Uh, in some cases, um, it was in actually building a new infrastructure. So they create a, a, the, the current digest of the Soviet press, which still exists as current. I think it's still called current digest of the post-Soviet press. Is that right, Chris? I forget. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it starts in the 50s as an effort um, to, to trans summarize and translate. Uh, articles from not just Pravda and Izestia, but from all over, uh, from whatever newspapers and magazines they could get a hold of. And one of the things they could do with this is they provided the basically the only index you had of Russian press, right? There was no, even, you know, in the era before Google search, there were, thing, there were resources for American and for British newspapers and magazines. You could look up in an index and find all the articles about so-and-so. But in, in Russia, with Russian press, there was no such thing. And so just to provide a kind of index became an immensely important tool. It's actually now been digitized. Um, and so it's still useful for people. Uh, I would note that, you know, for real experts, they would want to get to the material, the source material in Russian, but at least this could help them find it. And for a whole swath of, of other kinds of uh, research projects and for teaching purposes, to have these documents in English was indispensable. David, um, the next period in the book you talk about is the, the sort of coming apart of this unified area studies approach in the late 60s and 70s. And it seems like there are a number of forces at work, not least was the decline in funding. But I'd be interested to hear about what the forces were that led to that development. And if there was also a kind of change in the goals or in the focus um, of, of the area of study. I mean, I think the main tension, and this will come off as really an inside baseball story, but uh, because it really takes place within universities, but I think it's really important that these area study centers as they existed did not have their own faculty lines. People were in the history department and affiliated with the center. They were in an anthropology, political science, economics department, right? And that mattered a great deal because if you wanted to get tenure, you had to please the members of those depart your department and not, um, not your interlocutors uh, in, in Russian studies. And so one of the, the, the big tensions in the field is just around this. So in Harvard and Columbia, the physical location of the offices, people had their offices in the Russian center, which was great. Once you had tenure, it was great for collegiality, um, but it did take you out of your department. And so there's a tension between the role of the discipline and the department as, um, as against the role of area studies for these scholars. I think it's particularly visible in political science um, because the kinds of things that political scientists were doing that were cutting edge political scientists science in the 1960s were not the kinds of things that Soviet uh, students of Soviet politics could or were doing. Right. And so there's a, there's a sort of distance uh, from studies of Russian politics and the mainstream of the discipline. I know, I think it's telling that the first, um, there were two Soviet specialists, or Russia specialists, who were president of the American Political Science Association before about, I don't know, about 2000, well, before I wrote the book <laughs> in 2008. Uh, one was Merle Feinstein from Harvard, who was essentially a political historian who was not really engaged in current debates in political science at all. And he was president in 1968. Uh, and then the next is in 2005. Uh, and Mark Beisinger, uh, who uh, I think at that point at Wisconsin, gives a, uh, his presidential address about the difficulties of uh, speaking to a kind of a broad field of political science while being an expert. 
So one of the tensions that happens is, is I think, a sign of its growth and success is that more and more people want to be political scientists and not just Soviet experts. More people want to be historians uh, or sociologists. But it happened particularly in political science and economics because those are the two fields that we can certainly see this now had the, the kind of broadest, uh, highest aspiration to be a field of universal applicability, um, that you didn't need one political science to do Russia and another to do China. You just had one sort of form of political science. Economics was even further along that road. And one of the reasons why economic Sovietology, for all of its um, manifest successes, ultimately um, would have died, I think, by, with, it, with or without the Soviet Union by the 1990s. How did that change the goals? Well, it changes the goals in a number of ways. People really want to be speaking in political science journals. They want to talk to their political science colleagues. Do remember um, hearing from one political scientist asking him about how things had changed after 1991. And he said, you know, thank goodness I don't have to answer all these stupid calls from the New York Times, right? That he's, he gets just to be a political scientist. Now that may be an extreme instance, but I do think it's a revealing one, right? That, um, that not everyone wanted to be the pundits. Uh, Russian studies became a great field for people who wanted to speak to broader publics or policy publics. Um, but for those who wanted just to be university professors, it was a kind of uh, constant uh, tug back and forth. Okay, so David, let's let's dive into the the study of the Soviet economy. Uh, on the one hand, an economy organized obviously very differently from uh, what economics in the U.S. was used to studying. On the other hand, it was a crucial empirical question as to what was actually happening and and how were things structured. So, can you talk about how the field of the study of the Soviet economy emerged uh, to begin? Well, it emerged during World War II. They uh, the first place you can see a debate, you know, the debate I mentioned in the 60s between discipline and area, took place actually at the OSS, the uh, Office of Strategic Services, which is a forerunner to the CIA and that it was a civilian intelligence agency. Um, and they had a research and analysis branch that was run by someone who actually became the first head of the Russian Institute, later became the first head of the Russian Institute at Columbia. And that group was trying to figure out how much Lend-Lease aid the Soviet economy could absorb, right? They'd love to send all this stuff for military purposes, but how would it actually fit into the Soviet economy? And so they, they had a lot of people pouring over these reports, uh, planning documents, et cetera, just trying to, to develop some minimally quantitative uh, sketch of what the Soviet economy looked like. And so it came about for very kind of practical reasons. Those practical reasons changed after the war. They were more about how much defense spending could um, the Soviets afford to do, uh, how could the, how what was the state of the the economy in general, uh, why were they growing faster than the U.S. in the early 1950s? All these kinds of questions. So it was always something that had some pressing questions behind it. But the obstacles to to studying it were immense. Not just was it something for which uh, kind of advanced economic tools were not designed. There was no way to get good data. Uh, the data were, um, I mean, some people say the data were straight up manufactured. At the very least, they were very, very he heavily massaged. They would change the criteria every few years so the numbers would keep looking good. All kinds of shenanigans about it. Uh, and how you can sort of read those data and reach some kind of sense of how big the Soviet economy is, uh, how it's handling a trade-off between guns and butter, these were, were core questions that took um, took a lot of smart people decades to really uh, get a handle on. So in, in, in terms of the, the successes of the field, they have these massive data problems, um, and yet they made some strides to putting quantitative estimates on the field, on the, on the scope of the Soviet economy. Um, can you describe the extent to which the results were impressive? Were they disappointing? How would you assess the successes of the field? Well, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole kind of, uh, to put a gently conversation about this after the Soviet Union collapses and people get into the archives and uh, a number of people treated the archival documents as if they were, um, they held deep, profound, uh, unexpurgated, unprocessed truths. Uh, but in fact, they were also part of the part of the problem um and those i think they there was a tendency i think they would show to overestimate the uh, soviet levels of uh production and prosperity 
That said, they got a tremendous amount right. They were really uh, pretty close to right about the sort of overall shape and the kinds of economic decisions Soviet leaders had to make. Uh, there's one Soviet economist actually spent most of his career working in government uh, who claims that uh, based on some conversations he had in, in, in Moscow and in Novosibirsk in the early 1990s, claimed that the estimates were the Soviet, the American estimates were so good that the Soviets used them uh, for some of their planning process. Um, if it's true, it would be a wonderful story, but uh, there's not much more, uh, not much more to go on uh, than a couple than recording of a, or mention of a couple of conversations. Um, that said, there were there were definitely tremendous failures. I mean, the failure to predict the decline of this, the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, is something that weighs uh, on the field pretty heavily, and it got the field in, in, in enmeshed in quite a bit of controversy both in Washington and in among scholars for the half decade or so after '91. Although, although the, that failure was more a failure of the analysts of the political system than the analysts of, of the economy per se, right? Like if you look at projections of Soviet GDP growth from 1975, they'll show you, you know, stagnant growth or, or, or slowing growth yep. between then and 1985 or whatever. It's just the, the dissolution that no one uh, predicted, which is the, the political analyst's fault more than the economist's fault. Says the economic historian, exactly. But I also think that the, that the question what was framed at the time as an economic question, although you're right that it's ultimately political. I mean, the economic question is how little can you provide for your people uh, without risking overthrow, right? I personally take the view that the, that the kind of fracturing of the Soviet Union along nationalist lines tends to overstate the effect of nationality in or what we would call ethnicity. Uh, in the demise of the Soviet Union, I think it explains the the way that it fractured, but not the pressure that was on uh, on the Soviet Union. That pressure was ultimately economic, but there's no economic number that becomes absolute, right? It really is a political decision on how to act on it. So you're right, and yet the fact that the figures were a little overestimated uh, meant that there was, I think, some misunderstanding. You know, it's easy to, easier to misunderstand um, the kind of political stakes in the '90s, in the '80s, excuse me. The other, I think, interesting facet of the Soviet economic subfield is the extent to which its conclusions didn't feed into other aspects of the Soviet studies field or public debate in general. There's the famous anecdote of Paul Samuelson every five years in his uh, economics textbook changing the date at which the Soviet economy would overtake the U.S. economy. Uh, and, it, and that was not just him, that was a popular view. And, and by the 70s or so, that was not the view supported by the subfield of people studying the Soviet economy. But that was never really updated in the American thinking writ large. Yeah, well, it was a field that was really recondite and obscure, right? They had to have excellent knowledge of Russian and of the Russian economy and of economic analysis. And not just all of those, but the kind of combination of those to know the kind of wacky Russian, or like wacky by American standards, Russian system of categorizing, uh, right? So it was a field that had gained such expertise that they lost the ability, um, so much expertise that they lost the ability to talk to anyone who didn't have it. Or, or everyone else just didn't feel like listening because it was too much work. I mean, you can, you can put the blame on both sides, right, David? Yeah, I, I don't think the field did a great job uh, of um, communicating its ideas outside that. So Marshall Goldman is probably the uh, economic Sovietologist who had the biggest profile um, say in the, you know, in public discussions, but he was really kind of going off the cuff. I mean, it was based on his years of expertise and reflecting the writings of the field, but he, he wasn't actually, you know, using systematic conclusions on the kinds of things he was telling, uh, was telling journalists. I, I will say I, I, you know, coming back to contemporary stuff for a second, like, like China growth slowing over time is also, you know, you see very similar dynamics today um, among uh, 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 China watchers and my colleagues at Rhodium uh, who've been very focused on the the sort of long-term challenges to, to Chinese growth. Um, and the fact that that conversation hasn't really, um, you know, bled out into the, into the broader discussion feels very, um, uh, um, uh, you know, you see some real echoes there, I, I think between uh, today and the, and the Soviet well, in the early '50s, actually, the Eisenhower administration was so concerned about the um, uh, about Soviet growth rates being as, as much at that point as twice as high as the American growth rate. So, obviously, from a much, much, much lower starting point, um, 
that they actually hired someone to uh, develop a different metric in which the United would emphasize American superiority. And uh, it never really took hold, but they, they were concerned enough about it. It's sort of in public that they initiated this project uh, uh, to invent new measures. Well, I guess the, the other relevant data point is that in the Soviet Union as well, it was uh, it was not possible for a very long time to talk about the fact that Soviet growth was slowing. So you had <laughs> both an agreement among U.S. and Soviet policymakers that Soviet growth was not slowing, even though economists in both countries were, uh, at least uh, to themselves, concluding the opposite. We're well aware of, of it. I mean, the challenge, I think, for the de- thinking of the demise and the debates around that is it's you know, the Soviet Union had muddled through quite a bit uh, over the years, and it was much easier to take this view, like, if you look at the writings, uh, predictions from about 1980 to 1988 or so, everyone uh, has a very wide range of the possible outcomes from kind of re-Stalinization to utter, utter collapse and dissolution of, of, like, of political society full stop. Um, but then they all come up with this very narrow band of middle of the road conclusions, like the amount of muddling through well and muddling through poorly. And they were right until they weren't. This reminds me a little bit of the the kind of trend of predicting the fall of the Communist Party in 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 Chinese studies, which has been continuing for as long as the party has been around. Um, and I wanted to go back to the uh, political studies um, in the sort of late sixties and seventies. It seems like Russia at that time was a very different in a very different condition to the rest of the world, dealing with the um, inheritance of the empire, communist state. And in political science, trying to analyze to sort of more generalized theories, I'd be interested to know how it was incorporated into the debate and, and where you think potential blind spots were in that, in that endeavor. So I actually have a, uh, maybe an unusual entry point into this, which is Gene Kirkpatrick's essay, which I think from 1977 or so, Dictatorships and Double Standards, um, which is obviously a political piece, but it's actually reflecting contemporary American political science fairly well at that point. And now, uh, Kirkpatrick's argument is that totalitarian states are worse than authoritarian ones because authoritarian ones monopolize a political sphere but don't attempt wholesale political and social transformation. Uh, and so it is possible that once author- a post-authoritarian state could resume a reasonably uh, successful path, uh, whereas a post-totalitarian one would have no such, uh, no such luxuries. And she was then applying this to kind of foreign policy uh, questions. But that really does reflect some of the state of the art uh, of political science in those days. If you look at sort of handbooks of political science, they were very much about um, about this sort of uh, this sort of question. And so, what you see, I think, is Zbigniew Brzezinski had been making this case in one form or another over the '60s, at first to to um, quite heated dissent, and then to I think more and more acceptance that uh, it's really hard to imagine how a totalitarian state evolves. Uh, it can only degrade. In fact, I remember very well having a conversation, an interview I was doing for this project in Washington with the late General William Odom, who was a student at Brzezinski's, who ended up being the director of National Security Agency under um, under Reagan uh, and was sort of a Washington intelligence uh, figure, particularly interested in Russia. And he took out a napkin. Um, unfortunately, it was actually a cloth napkin at this, at this particular restaurant. He drew all over it of... Uh, of what what can happen to a totalitarian society, and it's basically there's no kind of smooth path for it. It it uh, it just it undergoes some utter collapse. Um, and so I think that was part of the assumption, right? Uh, I'd also say that you know in any given year, the bet that that uh, a society a society will continue to exist in more or less the same form uh, is actually well, the following year is actually a pretty good bet. Uh, it was right for the Soviet Union for, you know, uh, well, Soviet Union proper in 1924 until 1990. That was a good bet <laughs> in, until it wasn't. One thing I think we should address is is the impact of, uh, I guess, the late 60s moment intellectually in the United States on the field, um, both uh, the protests of 68, the Vietnam War, and just the, the general shift in American culture and intellectual life. How did that impact the Soviet studies field? I think it did in a number of ways. First and foremost, as you alluded to earlier, is uh, funding. The Ford Foundation, about 1967, uh, decides to 
sharply reoriented study, uh, its funding away from international studies taking place at American universities into two different directions, building up university capacity overseas directly rather than having people, Americans who would study it, uh, you know, build up intellectual capacity there. And then in a kind of belated response to the long hot summers of the 1960s, uh, going in deep on uh, urban studies, African-American studies, not only as uh, scholarly enterprises, but as kind of practical efforts. And so it really changed its, its mission. You had this great quote I want to read where um, Richard Pipes, uh, a scholar turned uh, Reagan appointee, makes the pitch to the, Ford, uh, to the president of Ford Foundation in the late 60s. And the guy says, Man, we support all kinds of studies, black studies, white studies, brown studies, studies in scarlet, rural studies, urban studies, but Russian studies? Don't you think that's a bit passe? Poor Russian studies. Yeah, he gave that as a toast. It's a fake conversation, an imagined conversation, but not an entirely inaccurate uh, inaccurate one, as historians of the Ford Foundation uh, would attest. The other thing that comes out, I think, over the course of the 1960s is is a little more subtle, but it's really important that, you know, the, the founding fathers of the field, and they were at that point all fathers, um, most of them had done some work, uh, had served in uh, government, if not in the military, over in World War II or immediately after. And they saw with this kind of something that looks remarkably innocent in retrospect, they saw their work with government as just a part of their portfolio as professors and they didn't raise and to them didn't raise any conflicts of interest or um uh, could couldn't possibly be untoward right um and they had this remarkable innocence about this that they can uh they can advise a dissertation one day and and a diplomat the next that they can go consult for the cia that they can accept these funds of money uh, these sources of money that wouldn't um but that wouldn't, of course, affect that the work they were doing. And I think a number of scandals over the 1960s uh, points out the uh, um, the incorrectness of that innocence assumption, right? There's a number of scandals, some of which aren't in Soviet studies, uh, but some of which are. Um, well, most of them aren't. I take that back. But the number of scandals outside of Soviet studies that show just how closely universities are intermeshed with um with the defense establishment at a time that the defense establishment is more and more uh, coming under deeper and deeper criticism uh, with a growing anti-war movement. And so that, that sort of innocence of, of, of a kind of steadily revolving door of government and, and academic work really just falls away. And I think it catches everyone a little bit by surprise, the older generation, because they, they can't understand what the young folks are talking about. Of course, it doesn't affect their work. And the younger generation, um, for looking with disbelief that people could assume, could make these assumptions that their funding sources weren't tainted. And that, I think that's, you know, we, there's a kind of overall overarching narrative of American history, losing faith in government uh, as a result, you know, in the era of Vietnam, whether or not you hold to that, the idea that universities should be doing the work, you know, working so closely with government is one that, had, that was strikingly uncontroversial uh, between 1940 and 1968 and, um, and has been controversial ever since. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Speaking of government, um, sort of government work, I, I would like us to to lean a bit on the the thread of to what extent all of this scholarship actually impacted U.S. policy and kind of what the the counterfactuals may have been have had the Ford Foundation not spent all this money um, and uh, you know you didn't get this 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 letter of expertise. Are there a few? Are there some themes or maybe particular examples of of policy paths not taken because there were, um, you know, Soviet experts in the uh, in the dialogue or in some cases actually in the room when it happened? That's a tough one. I think most of that stuff is it would be really hard to to make a strong counterfactual case for. I mean, to my mind, the, the major contributions of Soviet studies were to university life and to, and to education. And in that education, they're training a lot of people who then do go into uh, policy work. So by the by the end of the 1960s, 
there are people who are getting degrees in Soviet studies in order to become diplomats. Madeleine Albright, uh, by the time you get to the 70s and 80s, Dennis Ross, who was a, became a major Middle Eastern diplomat, but actually has a PhD in Russian studies. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, right? The, these folks are, are becoming Soviet experts because at that point, there is, there's no crisis anywhere in the world in which one of the first questions would be, uh, wouldn't be, what do the Soviets think of it? Right. And so this was part of the, this is what the field was meant to do. And in that sense, it worked. So how much, I, how much that affected any specific policy? I don't think there's ever a moment at which, um, in which a policy decision comes up for discussion. And then, then someone pulls out an article from Slavic review or from American political science review and says, no, we're looking at this all wrong and we have to do it differently. I do think that, that, that Soviet studies was generally a moderating force. And so the Air Force, which tended to take the strongest anti-Soviet views about everything, were funding these reports that said the Soviet Union is kind of just a modern society like ours. Now, we may not accept that as a conclusion, but it's definitely a moderating force. Uh, and I think, uh, I'd like to think that it played some role uh, in it, but it's, I think it would be hard to, hard to find the kind of single moment um, that lends itself to a direct counterfactual. Chris, I, I'd be interested... Um... David, to get your thought on um, exchanges with the Soviet Union, um, which were often run by the centers that, that we're discussing here. Um, what role did exchanges have in the field? Um, how important was it to have Soviet students studying at Columbia or wherever, or uh, having Americans get to spend time at universities in Leningrad, for example? That's a good question. In some ways, the, from the field question, what Soviets were doing in the United States mattered much less because the Soviet unions on all these academic exchanges sent predominantly laboratory scientists and engineers. And, and so there were very few people. There are a couple of instances of uh, people who rise up in the Soviet, uh, in the Soviet state or party um, who have done these American exchanges. But for the most part, the Soviet studies element of it is really uh, with Americans going over. And I think it was just as, just as likely to create frictions as it was to create deeper understanding. I think, um, one of the things that distinguishes Russian studies from say, uh, scholars of Russia from say scholars of France or, uh, scholars of Britain, or for that matter, um, scholars of India is that lots of people just really didn't like going to the Soviet union. They had devoted themselves to studying, but it was actually a really hard place to live in, in a lot of ways. There was a constant feeling that you were being singled out. Perhaps many, many people I spoke with were convinced that they were being tailed at every turn, uh, by KGB. It was a, it was a hard place to be. They found it rewarding in general, but, but not easy. Um, you'd never hear people talk about, you know, their, their research trips to, to Delhi or to London or Paris in those, in those kinds of terms. Um, so the, and they created a lot of tensions, uh, a number of times they were, I'd say reflecting tensions so that, uh, exchange scholars would get picked up one way or another and then meshed in geopolitical disputes that meant their expulsion. Uh, I do think that one of the lasting ways uh, impact it had was kind of cultural. One of the people I follow in the book is a uh, Berkeley uh, professor of literature, Gleb Struve, whose father was actually a very distinguished liberal politician in the last days of the Russian Empire, um, who used the exchanges. He never went himself, but his, he sent his students on tasks uh, to connect the Russian culture and emigration to the Russian culture within the Soviet Union which created a number of uh, scandals, but also um, I think played a meaningful role, though that's not the kind of thing that you're necessarily looking for. Uh, for historians, especially, um, the exchanges gave them more chance to actually be more like other people in their discipline who were going into archives rather than just reading published materials. And so I think it inadvertently, it, it uh, furthered the, uh, the kind of turn to discipline and department uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, but it also built tensions, I'd say, between the, it's a, it's a site where you can observe the tensions emerging between, um, between American universities and American government. Uh, when the American government was involved at every stage, uh, at least in some stages, in each of these exchange programs, from fairly blunt efforts to bring of the CIA sometimes to, to sort of debrief uh, exchange scholars so just a more general sense, the more we can learn about this society, the better. 
David, I do want to come back to the sort of impact on 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 politics stuff. In particular, I think the um, uh, the sort of Robert Conquest uh, pipes argumentation seems to you seem to be able to tie a reasonably straight line between that and kind of how and how the Reagan administration view the world. What were they getting on about? What were and and pushing back against um, in the other um, that that was that was going around with other scholars of that era and and how did their uh, views, if at all, shape how uh, the Reagan administration uh, played out the final years of the Cold War? Well, it depends if you if you think that Pipes was uh, hired to change the ideas uh, or the Reagan administration or Pipes was hired because he reflected the ideas of the Reagan administration. Sure. I'm more inclined to the latter, that there's a line from uh, an anthropologist in the 1940s who says that you know, government uses scholars like a, drunk, uh, like a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And I think that there's a way in which that's true. I mean, uh, Pipes is publishing these ideas and he's getting more and more kind of vocal in his critique after 1968 or so. And uh, I mean, uh, Pipes' uh, animosity toward the Soviet Union became more and more clear after 1968. Uh, He was one of the uh, Polish immigrants, uh, immigrants that Chris and I were talking about earlier, but he, um, and you can certainly read uh, his dissertation first book, which is uh, about how you know, Soviet unions steamrolled uh, all these various nationalities, Georgians, Central Asians, et cetera, um, Ukrainians, uh, sadly. You can, you, know, you can read a sort of strong anti-Soviet position in that, but he became more and more vocal in his opposition to the Soviet Union, as well as his opposition to the rest of the field. Uh, of Soviet studies over the course of the late 1960s and 1970s. So, um, you know, I think for someone like Pipes, this comes out primarily in, you know, this comes out with his increasing public profile, his increasing desire to publish books outside of academic life is essentially writing off uh, of academic Russian studies. Uh, And of course, that would make him appealing to to a conservative administration that felt that that the U.S. had been kind of soft on the the Soviet Union. Now, of course, um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was in the Carter White House, was actually making very similar questions. And if you're ever looking for something that's of impact of a single Sovietologist, I mean, Brzezinski in Afghanistan would be would be the first case that comes to mind, um, where his anti-Sovietism is so strong that he uh, he's he sees in Afghanistan only the opportunity to um, to speed the demise of the Soviet Union, to entrap it in its own Vietnam. There's uh, there's a line I think uh, it's quoted in a French interview with Brzezinski in the in the 90s, in which Brzezinski says, uh, "How does the quote go again?" It says, you know, "What's more important for the world, uh, kind of world? What is of greater world historical importance?" Uh, the collapse of the Soviet empire or a few stirred up Muslims. Um, and that's pretty close to a direct quote, uh, uh, from this, uh, interview. And, you know, this strong anti-Soviet position is around. I do think, you know, the, the, in the book, I have these two chapters paired, so right turn in the halls of power, left turn in the ivory tower. And I do think the right finds its way into, um, speaking to government, being in government more readily, uh, more readily than the left. Uh, and I do think it's visible, it's visible pipes, but even perhaps more, more significantly, uh, in someone like Brzezinski. What sort of research ended up being, you know, maybe, maybe going one level down from sort of like American grand strategy, what sort of research ended up being the most useful, um, to, to American policymakers? It's a good question. I think different policymakers would have different answers. I interviewed uh, Andrew Marshall, who at that point was the director of net assessment in the office of secretary of defense and the sort of a guru for a generation of intellectually inclined defense intellectuals. Um, and he had helped start a program in which defense department's money was basically laundered through uh, the department of state and then a scholarly organization. I actually have a grant from that organization, uh, uh, much more recently than that, the National Council for Soviet was at that point the National Council for Soviet and Eastern European Research. Um, and I asked him which studies were most useful, and he said, "You know, the people who were trying to be relevant um, weren't all that helpful because we actually had people at the Defense Department and intelligence agencies 
who knew the ins and outs of Soviet factories and knew the ins and outs of the Soviet military, right? What he found useful were depictions of Soviet society, how people lived, uh, what, how they functioned day to day, um, how they viewed their neighbors, the United States, their own government, et cetera. So for him, the useful studies were just academic studies that were covering the full gamut of Soviet, uh, Soviet life from culture to everyday life. I think, um, if you ask people in the CIA, they might, uh, some within the CIA might cite the economic Soviet logical work, which so the CIA had its own shop, uh, doing that had some, some, but not all classified, uh, material in addition to the open sources. Uh, that the academics were using, but there was a lot of back and forth between the two. So, and, you know, the government and policy policy world's a big world and different people had different pieces of it. Yeah. I wonder to what extent that Andrew Marshall quote was just like Andrew Marshall being this like polymath who like gets a kick out of weird stuff. Um, I, 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 I can see that. I think it's also his, his kind of, um, it's a little bit of a tweak of academics who are, are trying to be yeah relevant without really knowing how policy works yeah but i i mean i do think coming back to the story about the debates on how big and how how big the soviet economy is and how fast it was growing it did seem to me at least in in, in the narrative you tell in your book that having that you know outside or like sort of outside government check on um on these questions actually did end up significantly improving the the overall quality of the analysis this might be a change of topic too but i guess um you know one thing that was one institution that was uh, growing up alongside Soviet studies was the think tank in Washington, which I guess today inhabits some of the the space you're discussing, David, of of sort of quote unquote policy relevant analysis. Could you talk about how Soviet studies think tanks as they grew up, uh, how those two institutions interacted in the in the Cold War period? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wish I'd written, you know. I wish I'd written more about them and uh, had done more research into these. Um, I do think they come into greater play in the 1970s and 80s than they had before, in part because I think um, there's this growing divide in the field, uh, in the universities, between people who want to be academics and people who want to be speaking out publicly. I think the late 60s, early 70s also marks a kind of change of agenda, the departure of a generation, the kind of the founding generation from the scene. I think in the end, they emerge as a sort of para-academic world um, and in some cases closer to academics than others. So uh, the Rand Corporation obviously is a place that's around for the whole time. Uh, it hires, initially hires a bunch of people to do projects, summer work for Rand, go to Santa Monica, hang out on the beach on the weekends and, and consult, you know, uh, with, Rand, with Rand economists or do your own projects there. Um, but then I think it becomes harder and harder to keep that kind of revolving door going. And then people basically make a decision to one way or another. Um, by the 1980s, at least, Rand is actually running a PhD program jointly with UCLA and Soviet foreign policy studies, right? So they're building up this kind of para-academic network uh, around it that has um, is more interested in uh, foreign affairs magazine, foreign policy magazine, and any newspaper they can get quoted in, as well as in policy discussions uh, at you know, the staff level than they are in any academic work. So I think the field kind of divides and there's always exceptions of people who manage to do that, have that career from within the university, but more and more the think tanks are the place for it. It's a place that's easier to come and go from. Universities don't like you to leave all the time and then come back. They tend not to hold your job for you. Um, whereas the think tanks tend to be nice soft landing points when the administrations change. Uh, so I do think there's a whole, something that is only alluded to in my book is the, is the sort of para-academic world that, it, that strengthens as you're, as you're suggesting later in the Cold War. In the context of China studies, the contemporary academy seems to be quite polarized in the sense that history departments typically focus on much earlier periods, kind of 1990s at the latest. And then political science departments seem more and more preoccupied by proving or disproving propositions that use data. And I've spoken to a lot of, um, well, statistical methods rather, I've spoken to a lot of quite senior professors in those departments who came of tenure at a slightly different time in the field. And they are expressing concern really that this is sort of going more and more 
um, further and further away from, uh, from being able to contribute meaningfully to public discourse. And so given, given all the work you've done and thinking you've done about this era, I'd be interested to hear where you think the kind of educational function should sit to educate people who might go out into the think tank world, um, who might engage in public intellectual discourse, um, where that should be and who should be doing it. Well, Sam, I've only just met you now, but you're the perfect example of it. It seems to me that the master's programs uh, in area studies are the ideal place for this. This is what I think was intended at the founding of these area programs in the 40s and 50s. And I still, I think it still holds. I think, you know, there's an old joke that the dividing line between history and political science is that if the professor remembers something happening, it has to be political science. And if the, if the professor doesn't remember it happening, it must be history. <laughs> Um, by which point there's, there's more and more history, at least for me and, and, uh, more and more political science for me, uh, in recent years. Um, I mean, I think asking historians to work, uh, in the very recent past is hard, not just because we're kind of predisposed to antiquarianism, although maybe that's also the case, but because the way of being a historian is to use kinds of sources that generally aren't available, uh, in the immediate past. So it's asking historians to sort of renounce some of the principal tenets of their discipline. Um, I think, uh, and political science, I think you're exactly right, is moving more and more into this world uh, that's becoming much more like economics, where it has very rigorous definitions uh, of causation and is really determined to enact them. Um, I think it's quite impressive in a lot of ways what they're able to accomplish, but, but you're right that it comes at a cost. Uh, they're getting... I think there are even some within the field who say they're getting more and more finely tuned answers to smaller and smaller questions. Uh, and I think there's a trade-off in that. I mean, the other place I think I'd look is actually, uh, well, it appears on my screen immediately to your left, which is Chris Miller at a, at a policy school, right? The policy schools are places that do allow more autonomy. Chris can probably speak better to the, the tensions he faces within it. But the fact is that they are more into, they, are more willing to take political scientists who are not, um, uh, who are not data driven or solely data driven. And they're more, uh, more willing to take historians to willing to, to, um, move in more recent periods and use different kinds of sources. So those seem to me, you know, that right in this conversation, I think we see two of the answers for it. Um, but if you're asking the question, obviously the, even spite of these, the existence of policy schools for Chris and, and master's programs for you then it's clear that they're not doing enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and it might be, it might be unique to the case of China and, and to the case of the Soviet Union, but it seems like there's a, a lot of profit to be gained from engaging very closely with actually studying the party and taking the party seriously, taking what the party says seriously. And then one example would be, um, Deng Xiaoping's reforms, the overwhelming emphasis was on kind of opening. But the real opening was only economic. There was really quite strong indications that the, the political tightening would continue. And of course it, it did really. Um, and so if you're in an area studies program, I think there's little room to kind of continue your studies in that vein without, without sort of entering or totally committing to a particular discipline. Um, so yeah, maybe Chris, I'd be interested to hear, hear about your experience in that regard. Could I, could I actually ask a question, David, that picks up exactly on that, which is that you mentioned the party and the party is obviously super important in understanding the Soviet Union and, and insofar as we want to make comparisons to the China field today, also super important in understanding China. And I guess that's a place where it made sense to a, a substantial degree to have a field focused on, um, the Soviet Union on its own, because it had this institution that was quite different from how most, not all, but most other, um, uh, political systems organized itself. And the party was of overwhelming importance, not, not solely important, but of overwhelming importance in politics and economics and all the different subfields we can, um, discuss. And, and so David, I'd love to hear you talk about that, the, the study of the party and the study of, of sort of a Leninist state, um, and ways in which that fell out of fashion. Um, and I guess the pros and cons of it having fallen out of fashion in, in, in Russian Soviet studies. Um, and, and maybe parallels for China today. And I, I asked that as thinking back to when I started studying the Soviet Union, the hardest thing to get my head around was who are these different committees and how do they all fit together? And I wish I'd taken a civics class 
in Soviet politics, um, which hadn't been offered, I think, since uh, since 1965 at, at Columbia. Um, but, but that is sort of the hardest thing to get your head around is how does actually the party state function? Yeah, I mean, I give you two reasons, uh, two part dangers of it or uh, un- unfortunate outcomes, which are people who are studying the party, world experts on the party, or even worse, just emerging as experts in the party in 1991 and 92. So I have one classmate from undergrad who was uh, most of the way done with his dissertation on uh, inter-party communications in 1991, and he just went to law school. Uh, actually was just looking up someone who now teaches at Georgetown, does a lot of work on uh, prisons, but was trained in a very kind of internal party topic and just completely abandoned, abandoned it. Um, so I think there's a, you know, it's those kinds of institutions that seem timeless until they disappear that, uh, are a little bit higher risk. I do think that, that for the reasons that you've both laid out there, absolutely central importance and learning how they operate is um, is crucial. I think the, the, my fear is that, you know, that we moved away from a kind of descriptive political history, both within history field and within political science that leaves that sort of stuff out. So in the Soviet field, even in the seventies and eighties, you could still read the classics of the 1950s, especially like Smolensk under Soviet rule or how Russia is ruled and get something from it. Right. Um, in some cases, you'd have to filter more out, but you could really get that understanding. Um, I don't think it's, it would be impossible for someone to write that book, right? I think if you're writing that book from within a, a political science department or history department, uh, you're probably best off having tenure. Um, on the other hand, I also feel actually that just as the natural history, the natural, natural progression of an academic career, that's probably not a good first book anyway. Um, but I do think there's that possibility open to people to do it. Uh, I think in policy schools is another place where you can really see it for case oriented policy schools, like the Kennedy school, it would make a great case to write, right. To show just different, very different ways of organizing institutions, uh, and, you know, society function, society, social functions that are more or less similar, uh, but operate, uh, on very different, you know, institutional bases. So. As to why there isn't one, I think the incentives aren't completely aligned to it, but I, I don't think the incentives are so misaligned that it would be impossible to imagine someone. Maybe, David, let's close on some reading recommendations. Uh, you know, you, 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 you went through an enormous amount of, uh, of, of scholarship, of 20th century scholarship looking at the Soviet Union um, with, uh, in, in the course of writing this book. I'm curious if you can pick a handful of uh, books or articles or essays, um, which you think cap it captures some sort of like jingshen. I don't know, like some like the kind of like spirit, um, which you would hope that uh, you know today's folks looking at uh, contemporary China and the CCP might want to uh, think about being inspired by uh, as they tackle the 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 challenges inherent in um, uh, in understanding uh, contemporary China. Huh. It's a good question. Let me think. I, I guess I have a bunch of different, each of which illustrate one kind of corner of the field at one particular moment. The first one's actually not by an academic uh, or not by, not by an American. He occasionally taught in uh, British universities. Isaac Deutscher's one-volume biography of Stalin. Uh, and what's interesting is it's a partisan history. Deutscher is a Polish Trotskyite. So the American Poles like Brzezinski and Pipes were anti-Soviet. Deutscher uh, represents a different, uh, different perspective. But it's a kind of prime example of the best sort of partisan history. He's very clear on his position on things and yet writes up a, a compelling uh, and indeed moving account. In the 50s, the one I, I would use would, in kind of more mainstream terms would be a book I already mentioned, Merle Feinsad's uh, Smolensk Under Soviet Rule. So Smolensk is a city um, uh, in Western uh, Soviet Union that was uh, occupied by the Germans. The Germans ransacked the archives and then brought them back to Berlin. And then when, when the U.S. took over, they uh, occupied Berlin. They actually reclaimed these boxes of correspondence from Smolensk to Moscow. And the book is based on that. Uh, it shows the kind of ties to government because uh, it was something that was held in, you know, in intelligence, U.S. intelligence for a while. Um, but it's not a book you'd, if you read the criticisms of the field of the 60s and 70s, it's not the book you'd expect. It's all about the push and pull of Soviet society. Uh, the It's not all top down. Uh, it's a really interesting account. And it's exactly this kind of 
history that we were talking about that is um, is hard to find that is a kind of descriptive political or maybe even analytical political history, but it's not political science, uh, even though Merle Feinstein was a political scientist. To represent a, a kind of different era of the so-called revisionist uh, uh, accounts, people who are really determined to make Russia uh, and Soviet history a part of history, um, would be a controversial one by Sheila Fitzpatrick called The Russian Revolution. It comes out in a couple of editions starting in the early 1980s. And it's really an attempt to um, to rethink the nature of the uh, of the first two decades of the Soviet Union. The revolution, in her mind, does not go only until 1917, but it's not just by 1917, but goes through the Stalin years. A book I would use so for ironic, almost ironic purposes of a different sort is Laura Engelstein's Keys to Happiness, which published in 1991, just as the Soviet Union collapses. And it's a great, it's a wonderful book about um, the cultural history of the last years of, M of the Russian Empire. But what's, what I find striking about it is that it, it's really an account of how to write really good Russian history um, without archives. And, yet, and then 1991 happens and archives uh, become the kind of um, the state of the play. It's a really intelligent and thoughtful book. And the last one's a very recent one. It's a bit of a doorstop, uh, Yuri Slowskin's uh, House of Government, which is what happens when you have people who are born in the Soviet Union and who have fluent and idiomatic Russian in the field. And it, it's account of this one building on the Moscow River right across from the Kremlin uh, that housed a lot of senior Bolshevik officials um, and was also, therefore, the site of where where those black trucks came uh, full of KGB people. At that point, it wasn't KGB uh, and KVD people uh, to hustle off people in the purges. And it's this, a, it's this very personal account, but it's also a very uh, interpretive book. But it's the kind of book that would be hard to imagine anyone uh, besides him writing, or at least anyone who hadn't lived in the Soviet Union writing. He, he spent a lot of time in archives. He read all these memoirs, but he also spent a lot of time sipping tea with Babushki in uh, hearing stories uh, about their childhood. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a state of the field that, you know, it's, it's something that the field has gained immeasurably, a sense that the field's gained immeasurably from, from, the, presence of, uh, from the presence of people from the region, and, which is something I think that is up for, up for discussion in China studies as well. Yeah, no, it's a really fun, beautiful book. Um, Last question, David. Other people we should talk to about the history of American or just world Soviet studies? Uh, I don't know. There's a there's a German scholar, uh, Corinna Unger, who wrote her first book on American and German uh, uh, Russian studies. And the German angle is pretty interesting if you want to get into it. Um, her name is Corinna Unger at uh, European University Institute. I would say it's not been, I mean, it's a field where people are writing memoirs and accounts, some of which I think are quite thoughtful. Although my general thought from having spoken with a lot of people and writing Know Your Enemy was that people don't like to be historicized. And for some reason, historians perhaps like it even less than others um, <laughs> to be understood in a kind of broader historical context. It's been hypocritical. Um, uh, well, they know, they know what historicizing means <laughs> better than anyone. Um, last thing, David, we end every podcast with a song. I don't know if there's like a... American Soviet studies song, or you have a favorite Cold War song? I wish you'd, put, you'd find me for this. Uh, a song that speaks to, to Soviet studies. I mean, back in the US, Beatles back in the USSR would be too easy. Yeah, yeah. 